0: Good morning, Grace, friends, and visitors. It was fun this morning to see a bunch of you who've been out traveling various places around the country. Uh, welcome back to our uh, Midwestern contingent in that road. Good to see you guys. Um, I'm Kenny, one of the elders here at Grace. It's my privilege to get to preach this morning. Uh, as we start off the new year, we are not jumping into our next big series quite yet. Um, in three weeks, we're going to have a reading service of Daniel, uh, the, the narrative chapters of Daniel 1 through 6, and uh The beginning of chapter 9, we'll explain as we start why we're not doing the entire book. But uh, these first two Sundays of the year, we're going to pause and begin the year here in John chapter 15 with a little mini-series we're calling Abide in Me. So you can turn there, and we're going to read it in just a bit. But let me pray as we start. Lord, we've already been praying through some of these songs we've just sung um, asking you to do something here while we're gathered under your word together. Um, we have asked you to, f- to help us uh, fix our eyes on you, our soul's reward. So pray you'd help us, Lord, to treasure you in our hearts as our soul's reward. And like we sang, Holy Spirit, we pray that uh, you would breathe new life into our willing souls. You'd make us willing to receive that new life and walk in it bring the presence of the risen Lord to renew our hearts and make us whole. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, let me get myself situated here. As you can see on our stage... It's the week. We've packed up all the Christmas stuff. It's all gone. Doesn't it look, it was plain after all the trees and poinsettias and, and bursting green stuff. It's, it's very stark. I don't know if, if you at your house this week, like our house, the week after New Year's, Betsy's like, as soon as it's uh, January 1st, I know the time is ticking. that We're going to pack it all up. And so uh, Monday morning, we got up, I was making my coffee, and I said, Levi, go, go plug in the Christmas tree. We all, we're only going to get this a couple more days, and then we've got to pack it all up. And Levi says, oh already? It went so fast. It feels like we just put it all up. And I feel this pain. I feel that way. It feels like we just set it all up, and we have just started enjoying it, and it was all gone. But as he said that this week, as I've been in John chapter 15, uh, where we're going to be, and have been thinking about the disciples in that upper room sharing one last Passover meal that they maybe didn't realize was going to be the last Passover meal they shared with their Lord, um, that they were feeling, likely, very similar. As, As Jesus was saying things at the table like, let not your hearts be troubled. I'm going away. I'm about to go to the Father. I'm going to prepare a place for you. He was about to, that night, hand his life over, willingly, to die a violent death on the cross as our sacrifice, to be buried in a tomb for days, to reappear, risen triumphantly and appear for 40 more days to over 500, showing himself as having walked out of the grave, only to then ascend into heaven in the, front, uh, in the sight of his disciples as they watched him disappear from their sight. You can imagine them, can't you, at this meal as Jesus begins talking about leaving, thinking, it went so fast, feels like just yesterday you were calling us to drop our nets and come become fishers of men. I mean, you're leaving already? Our people have been waiting centuries for you, Jesus. You're the Christ. Where are you going? Why are you leaving? But as we're gonna see here in John 15, he wasn't leaving leaving. He was physically leaving for now and he will come again bodily, physically, but he was not leaving them without himself, his presence. He wasn't leaving us without his presence in a very real, even much more powerful way, which is why he could tell them, um, it's good that I go away. The Father's going to send the comforter. But we just finished in the month of Advent for six weeks thinking about Jesus, the Son of God, taking on a human nature in every way like ours so that he could fulfill the righteous requirement of God's law perfectly as we've all failed and then give his life as a ransom for many at the cross but all of that wasn't the end game right the end game was so that he could then offer us a gift John 10 10 says it as simply as Jesus ever says it he says I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That's why Jesus became the God-man forever. That's why he came to save us. That's what he came to save us to and usher us into is abundant life. So as Grace, we put another Advent season behind us and a new calendar year begins. I wanna ask you, um, how are you enjoying the gift of abundant life? John 15, one through 11 is like Jesus' instruction manual for how to enjoy the gift of abundant life he wants us to have. He tells us exactly how we find our way into it in increasing measure in these verses. So we're taking the first two Sundays of the year to get, re, realign ourselves with the point, abundant life, are, are we enjoying it? If not, here's how to do it right here. So let me uh, turn to John 15. I want to read uh, 1 through 11 to you. And work our way through. Jesus looked around the table, having washed all of their feet, reminding them that even though he was their Lord, he had come to serve them in what he was about to do at the cross so that they might have life. And then he says to them, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it might bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me. And I in you. thrown into the fire and burnt. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father's glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you are so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. Wow. Let me read that last verse again because I want to start here. And then do a little reverse engineering of what Jesus has just spoken to us. I've spoken these things to you. Why? So that my joy may be in you. My joy. Not just any joy. I want my joy to be in you. How much? A little bit? Quarter tank? He says, no, full. I want you to be full with the fullness of my full joy. It's a lot of joy. Maybe if I asked you walking in this morning, what are you walking in here filled filled with? Joy wouldn't be at the top of the list. What would be? Would shame? Filled with shame. Anger? Maybe anger with someone you're sitting next to. Filled with discouragement and sadness? Because the circumstances of your life right now are not what you thought you signed up for. Filled with apathy. Just no life. Just blah. Just static. Because Jesus wants you to want to be filled with the fullness of his joy and that's why he's spoken these things to us. He wouldn't have spoken these things if it weren't actually possible for us to know something so Um, huge. His joy filling you. Can you imagine coursing with the very joy that Jesus experiences? You might ask, okay, so how joyful is Jesus? How much joy is in Jesus that he wants to pour into me? Well, for example, Psalm 16, verse 11, ends like this, David says to the Lord, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Where is Jesus right now? That's where he is. He is seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. He's right now at this moment far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. At this very moment, Jesus is surging with joy and pleasure forevermore. That's what he has to pour into us in its fullness. And it gets even better, Paul says. And having put all things under Jesus' feet and given him as head over all things to the church, to us, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. So did you get that? That's just another analogy of organic connection like vine and branch. There he says Jesus has been given to us as the head over all things to the church, which is his body, so that his fullness can fill all in all. Jesus wants his joy steadily flowing into our hearts. Who doesn't want that? Right? So how does this happen? Well, he says, I've spoken these things to you so that that can happen. So what are they? There's a lot packed in here. We're not gonna hit every single detail, but four things in here that Jesus has spoken that I wanna trace a line. This is how that abundant life comes to to get inside of us here, this kind of joy. And it starts with verse one, at understanding where it all is rooted, in Jesus, the true vine. Jesus is the true vine. That's point number one. When he says, I'm the true vine, adds that word true, he's taking this image, this national symbol from the Old Testament, the prophets and the Psalms, a a symbol that God gave, an image of his chosen people as a vine or a vineyard that he planted and cultivated and watered, and he's appropriating it to himself. For example, Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it, he cleared it of stones, he planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes. But it yielded wild grapes. And now... O inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I'll tell you what I'll do to my vineyard. I will remove the hedge, it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, it shall be trampled down, I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord is of, of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice and behold bloodshed. For righteousness and behold an outcry. Israel's tragic history was that of a failed vineyard who had received from the Lord everything that ought to have produced an abundant harvest of fruit, of faith and obedience and glorifying to the Father, the vine dresser, but had failed. Do you remember how often in Luke's gospel, as we were studying it together, Grace, frequently Jesus told parables and pleaded with these religious leaders who were opposing him to say, don't you see, I've come looking for fruit. I'm looking one more time. And he wept over Jerusalem because they were, this Isaiah prophecy had come true of them. And so Jesus, when he says, I'm the true vine, He is saying, I have come, I took on a human nature, I became the God-man so that I could become the perfect fulfillment of everything as Israel was supposed to be as God's chosen people for his possession. In every way Israel failed, Jesus succeeded perfectly. And then he laid that perfect life down in sacrifice to atone for the guilt of the failed vine and vineyard. And I love how Fred pointed this out just a few Sundays ago that Jesus didn't just categorically become a human dropped out of the sky but with no family of origin but just like us, he was born into our humanity, born of Adam, born of Abraham, born of David. And he said, Fred said, this reminds us of how God redeems. He's committed to deep repair Even as much as that Isaiah 5 sad image grieved God, he didn't just chuck it in the bin. The true vine is springing out of the stump of Jesse, the dead stump. And he even then started first by offering the privilege of being grafted back into the new true vine as branches to those who were part of the dead stump. So the first thing we gotta get clear about abundant life is that Jesus um, is the true vine and it's only found in him. He's the source of abundant life. Point number two, we are then the branches. He's the vine, we're the branches. Look at verse five. This tells us at least three things about this abundant life. First is that we draw it from him alone. There is no other source of abundant life other than the true vine. Look at verse four, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I'm going to come back to the bearing fruit part, come back to the abiding part in a minute, that's important, but just for now, notice the exclusive source of the life, right? It's not found anywhere else. Verse five, he says it again, apart from me, You can do nothing. Drawing, trying to suck abundant life out of anything other than me will be unsuccessful in the end. He's got sap in mind here, right? In the analogy of vine and branches, he's thinking about the life of Jesus, the joy of Jesus flowing into us, enlivening us, empowering us, making us new. So it shouldn't surprise us then when we try to draw from other vines to find abundant life that eventually were unhappy and unsatisfied. Maybe it takes us a while to get there. But no other vine can give you abundant life. All of your work accomplishments, everything this year, you start a new year and you have this year, I've made some goals, I've got them. Those cannot bring you abundant life like Jesus offers. All of your school goals you have for this semester, students, and accomplishing them all and keeping that GPA at 4.0 or better, that's great, but it's not going to provide abundant life for you. Nothing other than Jesus. Hobbies won't do it. Travel experiences won't do it. Relationships, sex, food, possessions. Now, all of those things are good and created by God to be enjoyed, and if we enjoy them as gifts and not vine, the, the vine that we're trying to draw it from, and we, order, we enjoy those gifts as he's ordered those gifts and prescribed each of those gifts because he gave the gifts and he knows how they to be, are to be used and how they are abused. But if we do, then they can all be wonderfully enjoyed. It's just that we're so good at elevating those things to vine status, right? We all do it. We try to suck what can only come from Jesus out of things that Jesus made. And we're bound to be disappointed. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. You won't bear fruit apart from me. Second thing being branches teaches us. It says that true branches bear abundant fruit, Jesus says. True, true, if you are a true branch, you will bear abundant fruit. He says six times, bearing fruit is the whole deal. This is what it's all about, bearing fruit. Twice, he says, bear much fruit. So what's the fruit Jesus has in mind? Is he he thinking internal character, transformation, Galatians 5, fruits of the spirit, sort of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, um, resembling Jesus in character by degrees? Is he thinking more out externally like ministry and great commission and bringing more branches in and making disciples and the, and the vine spreading to the ends of the earth? Yes. It's all, it's all of it, I think. Internal, external, heart transformation, world transformation. It's everything that flows from the vine out to his branches. Um, like the, like the hit Christmas carol we sang, he's come to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. It's all of that. And notice two things we see in verses four and five, contrasting ideas. On one hand, apart from Jesus, you can't bear fruit. It won't happen, certainty. But look at the other and be encouraged by this. Abiding in Jesus, you can't not bear fruit, he says. Double negative intended. Look at that verse. Whoever abides in me and I in him. Doesn't matter how long you've abided, how hard you're abiding, how gifted or talented you are, whoever abides in me, Bears much fruit. It's a certainty the way Jesus says it. If you are abiding, there will be life. And where there is life, there will be fruit, much fruit. And third thing, this abundant fruit glorifies the Father. Look at verse 8. It's not merely for us, but the Father offers this uh, this redemption through Jesus invites us in to participate in, in his love of the Father and the Son and the Spirit and to be filled with abundant joy because it glorifies him. Verse 8, by this my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. I want to pause for a second. I want to dispel maybe a notion that you might have that I don't think is entirely accurate according to the Bible. And that is that glorifying God is something different than me pursuing my own personal joy. That the truest God-glorifying things that I can do are not having to do with me and what I want and finding joy. It's, It's all about God and giving him the glory. Like it's a service that we render to him that doesn't necessarily have to do with us enjoying him or getting anything personally out of it. That couldn't be farther from the truth. What a higher joy, if you could get yourself into the brain of a branch, what higher joy could a branch have than bearing fruit? It's its purpose, right? It's what it sprang out of the vine to do. Don't forget verse 11 again. These words Jesus is speaking, seek to bear fruit that glorifies the father is so that his tremendous joy can be our tremendous joy. So bearing fruit, pursuing that is part of pursuing joy. Do you see that? That our enjoyment of him is how we glorify him. In fact, I would even argue when we try to sort of separate him out and say, no God, I'm I'm just going to glorify you right now. It has nothing to do with me or what I'm getting out of this. I think that dishonors God. Because God God is infinitely worthy of our joy and enjoyment, right? It, It is all about him. So we'll dig into that a little bit more here in this third point. But it starts with Jesus. He's the true vine. We are the branches. And then third, this abundant life, abundant fruitfulness springs up as we abide in Christ. So let's understand that. Verse 4 and 5, he says almost the same thing. Abide in me and I in you. So it sort of goes both ways. It's the picture of union, right? Jesus' life like sap is flowing into us. We are drawing it from him. Verse 5, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. So what does it mean? more specifically, to abide in Christ. Well, look at verse nine. I think verse nine sharpens our understanding of what it means to abide in him. Because if the ultimate goal is Jesus' joy flowing in fullness in us, what is the cause of Jesus' joy that he wants us to share? Verse nine tells us, as the Father has loved me, so to the same measure with which the Father loves me, the Son. So have I loved you. Wow. The same as the Father loved, has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love, he says. That's what it means to abide in Christ. It means to abide in his love, to make yourself at home, in, in the home of God's love, the son's love, the perfect love of father to the son. The son loves you. The father loves you. Make yourself at home there, Jesus says. Get used to it. Believe it. Settle yourself down in it. Make my love the base of operations for your daily life. Live under the banner of my love like a roof over your head and shade and rest the full weight of your confidence and hope and peace on my love that's steadfast, that nothing can separate you from if you're in Christ Jesus. Rest your weight there. The more we know and believe and settle ourselves, abide ourselves in the secured once for all at the cross, never have to be repeated love of God in Christ, the greater our fullness of joy will be, right? That's it. Because that's where the fullness of Jesus' joy is surging from, this perfect love shared between the Father and the Son. This is why Paul prayed, Like he said he prayed for the Ephesians and no doubt for every church he planted and every Christian disciple that he made and how we should be praying for ourselves. I think this prayer in Ephesians 3, as I've thought this week, this is Paul praying John 15, 1 through 10 into us. See what I mean? Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith and you being rooted and grounded in love. There's that vine branch kind of talk, right? Rooted and grounded in what? In love would have strength to comprehend with all the saints. What is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, here's the end game, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You see him praying John 15 into us? Do you see the thread tracing a line from the love of God for us through Christ into our receiving of that love and resting and abiding in it, trusting in it and enjoying it into it bearing the abundant fruit of joy and God glorifying in our lives. You see that thread. If you are in Christ, his love has become your permanent address. So get familiar with it. That's your new home. I love that Paul prays in dimensions like that because if you try to picture yourself, if Christ's love is like your abode, your home, how big is this place, this this home of love that you're living in. Well, it's higher, wider, longer, and deeper than you can even measure. It surpasses comprehension. It's huge. And the more we make ourselves at home in this palatial love of Christ, the more naturally we're going to bear fruit. We're going to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. How could we not when we've been loved like that? And when we really get that, How can we not look around at others who don't know that love and want to be part of getting them in on that, right? How can it not fuel mission, God-glorifying, branch-making mission, right? You know, we recount these four E's as a way of thinking practically about how does the Bible tell us disciples are made practically, the how, to answer the how, right? And it begins, if you imagine someone who's completely outside of Christ, doesn't know anyone who would ever even tell them about Jesus, it starts with engaging, right? Building a bridge of relationship and a context within which then you can move to evangelize and you can actually tell somebody this amazing news about abundant life through Christ in the true vine, right? And as people are, uh, spring up as new branches, it looks like the branches all connected together, rooted together with Christ as the head or the vine, mixing up our metaphors here, right? We help establish one another and bear fruit together. We equip one another as we are gifted in different ways so that the whole uh, vine grows, right? but there's a fifth E that sort of enfolds and surrounds those four E's that answers the why question. So it's important to answer the how question. That's how it's done. We move people from a trajectory all the way out here completely apart from Christ, little by little into Christ and then growing in Christ. But the E that surrounds and enfolds it all is enjoyment of God, right? Right? That's what it's all about. That's why Jesus has spoken all these things so that his joy can be in us to the full. So the greater we get that fifth E, the enjoyment of God is where it begins all the way through and where it's all headed when we're presented mature in Christ one day around his throne forever. How will we not be dying to be part of his mission? The greater our enjoyment of God, the greater our desire for others to get in on it, and it all grows out of abiding in Christ's love. So I want to stop here a minute and ask you this morning, for you, what this morning is impeding you from abiding in Christ's love? Because you'd think that would be the easiest thing in the world for us to say, that's awesome, of course I want to abide there. So why don't we? Maybe for you it's internal, it's guilt related guilt within, sin that is just looms large here and it just looks bigger than God's love and you have dark thoughts about God's love and you are tempted to think that God's love works the way our love usually does where it kind of rises and falls based on how we're loved first and God's ways are not our ways. His love is not like our love. Don't forget what Randy reminded us last week that the true vine is also our great high priest who is a bridge, he wants to bring us to God so that we can come with confidence that we will receive mercy and grace in our time of need. He always intercedes for you. He always lives to intercede for you and he loves his job because he loves you. So, Like we sing in the song, when Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of the guilt within, impeding you from abiding in the love of Christ, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin, right? Because the sinless Savior died, my soul is counted free. God the just is satisfied now to look on him and pardon me. I can abide in his love today. It doesn't have anything to do with my sinfulness. It has to do with his love. And Christ finished work on the cross out of love. Maybe for you this morning, what causes you to struggle in abiding in Christ's love is not so much what's in here, but what's going on out here in your life. And the circumstances of your life are not the hand you would have chosen to be dealt. And it causes you to wonder, does God love me? How could God love me? And fill in your blank. That's why we need verse two of what Jesus says here. Look back at the second half of verse two and what Jesus says the vine dresser, the father does. Every branch that does bear fruit, that means every branch that is is in the love of God, right? That every branch he loves that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now, this is one of the things on the cutting room floor. I'd love to go into more time. I think that one of the ways that the, the Father prunes us is internally through the word, like a scalpel, and the word, when it, cu- when it, cuts it uh, you know, uh, convicts us of sin and it sort of cuts off routes that we'd like to go, that's, that's a pruning work. But I also think one of the pruning works of God has to do with the, the, his providence and the circumstances of his life. And he graciously, at times, cuts things off and removes even good things so that we might bear more fruit. You know, A few years ago, um, about a year after we moved into the house we're at now, we had a bunch of these fruit trees, citrus trees, apple trees, uh, a couple of Asian pear trees, and they were doing all right, but some of them would put out like two apples or three pears or something. So we paid this guy to bring his crew out, a tree expert, and spend a whole day pruning all the tr- fruit trees in our backyard. And we got, came home at the end of this, and we walked outside. It was like a horticultural murder scene I mean, do you remember? It was like, we paid for this? I mean, like some of our trees were like just wood. And then like an entire branch would have like three little green leaves, like a tuft, like a Charlie Brown Christmas tree on the, I mean, we were like, we've seriously thought, I don't think some of these trees are going to survive this mutilation, right? But it was amazing. This guy knew what he was doing. And when spring came and when the rains happened and the trees were doing their thing, what he had done in pruning, they came back like, you know, filled with leaves. Here's our, our little navel orange tree a few years down. This is just yesterday I took the picture. I had so many oranges this year that we haven't picked yet. We're propping it up with two two by fours to keep the branches from breaking off because of pruning. God's pruning isn't punishment. The vine dresser is not a hack. Every snip is precise and purposeful to bring more fruit. Jesus just told us so. It's not a sign of God's displeasure. It's a sign of his fatherly love and how much he wants Jesus' joy to abide in you. So grace, let's help one another trust the Father's shears, right? And pray for fruit. So we're almost done. Jesus is the true vine. We're the branches. We experience abundant life in increasing measure as we abide in Christ, which really means we abide in his love and we get used to it and we make it our home and we live out of the fullness and security of that. But then, very most practically speaking, if we say, okay, but how do I abide in his love? Verse 7 points us there. Two very practical things that are interrelated. When he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So it has to do with his word dwelling in us and it has to do with then what we ask him to do while that word is ruling and reigning, abiding in us. So I'm gonna take us to the word here at the end. Next Sunday, you're all gonna come back because Eric Twistleman's gonna be up here and he's gonna take us back to John 15 and we're gonna think about all this from the side of the role of prayer in this. But for now, let's just end with this. If his words abide in you, notice that's another way of Jesus saying abiding in him. Look at the verse again. When he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, that and isn't like two different things. Like this morning you, you brushed your teeth and you ate breakfast. It's the same thing. He's just reiterating it in another way. So if you abide in me, that is, in other words, and my words abide in you, that's how you abide in me when my words are abiding in you. Again, that's the sap, right? So the question then is, what does it mean for Jesus' words to abide in you? And just to be clear, don't, when Jesus says my words, don't just think the red letters in the four gospel books, the ones he spoke in the three years that he ministered that the, the apostles wrote down and recorded for us. Jesus means all of this. And I know that because all the red letters in your Bible were about all these black letters in your Bible. <laughs> they were all grounded on the whole counsel of the scriptures that they had when Jesus came, and all the rest of the black letters back here were inspired by his Holy Spirit as the Spirit led each one on to give us exactly what God knows we need that pertain to life and godliness. So Anyway, don't get hung up on, Jesus' words are all the words, not just the red words, but how do we abide in them? Well, it starts at very base level with knowing them, right? We gotta read them, we've got to hear them, we've got to commit them to memory so that even when I don't have this, I'm not without the words of Jesus, right? So memorizing, storing his word in our hearts is important. It can't abide in me if there's not a door that I let it into in the first place, Right? regularly, consistently, feeding on it like a branch, constantly is drawing sap from the vine and the root. You know, this has been my not-so-secret strategy for many years writing Adventure Week songs. If you've been to Adventure Week, you know most of our songs are actual word-for-word passages of Scripture that we're helping our kids memorize, and we're magically doing it by putting it to music that they can sing and it's been wonderfully effective. Imagine my joy last night at nine o'clock as I was getting ready for bed and I start getting text messages from Sam Tonnes, who's out cruising with his homies, Sam Rapsky and Uni and Elias Oaks, Sam driving and they're pumping the radio, going, for, where were you, Starbucks or In-N-Out or somewhere? Dyson. Oh, Dyso. <laughs> That's where the dudes go to hang out, just a little discount shopping at Dyso. Okay. Did you get anything good? Okay. (laughs) But check this out. At nine o'clock, I get I get this text, and I'm like, "What is this video?" (laughs) The glory. That's Psalm 19:1 right there. (laughs) The work of his hands. It's so good. It filled my heart with joy. And then I didn't just get one text. All of a sudden, you blew up my phone, as the kids say. Right? The kids say that, right, Lily Man? And I get this one. And this is... You know the song. Hold on. It is a gift of God, not a result of works. And then Uni thought the rap was coming. That, that's it. One more. <laughs> Sent forth his. This is Galatians 4, 4 and 5, right? To, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Yes. That, I know that that embarrassed you, but that blessed me so much. I love that. But that's where the word abiding in us starts, right? It's got to get in and stick. And I love when it does like that, but it doesn't end there because you can store lots of Jesus' word, God's word in your memory banks and actually it it failed to abide in you. We know this because Jesus said to some of the Jews who were seeking to kill him, who had vast amounts of scripture memorized, chapter and verse, and could have proudly quoted it to Jesus, he looked them in the eye and he says, you don't have the word abiding in you. Can you imagine them saying, oh, I, I don't? which book would you like me to quote from? But he says, you don't have his word abiding in you for you don't believe the one whom he sent. So it's not less than knowing God's word in here, but it's more than that if it's not paired with believing the one who all that word is about and submitting to him and obeying him. That's how we abide in his love. We trust his word, we believe in him who gave it, and we obey it. One last thing, in verse 10, here in our passage, connects the dots with abiding and obedience. In verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And I want us to see the if isn't a transactional thing. Like, Jesus is saying, if you will obey my command, step one, I will subsequently give you some of my love as a reward, step two. And then if you obey some more of my commands, I will subsequently reward you with some of my love. That's not what Jesus is saying. And I know that because he says it's just the way it works with the way I keep the Father's commandments and I abide in his love. And that's not how it worked with Jesus and the Father, did it? Jesus said in John 4, my food is to do the will of my Father who sent me. It's my greatest joy, in fact, when he was hungry at the end of that day in Samaria and the disciples went off to get him lunch and they came back and he was preoccupied sharing that he is the, the, the true fountain of life with this poor Samaritan woman and they say, hey, Jesus, why don't you eat your lunch? He said, no, 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 my food is to do this. This is way more joyful than eating lunch right now. I'd rather be hungry and do this. You see, That for Jesus to to obey his father's commands, to walk in his father's commandments, was to abide in his love, was to experience his love. Here's another way to think of it as we close. Look at verse 11 again. If Jesus is saying, these things I've spoken to you, and not just one through 10, but all the things I've spoken, are so that my joy could be in you to the fullest, then that includes when he says, keeping my commandments, I I give you these commandments because I want you to taste my joy and know my love. It's keeping the commandments where we will experience that love. It's not our reward for having first obeyed his commands. The commands are how we walk in and abide in his love. Does that make sense? Every command of Jesus, even the ones that you chafe against and maybe internally are tempted to think, this command is stealing happiness that my heart wants. God, is, Jesus has made a boundary that you want to cross. Even in those commands, Jesus is saying that's an invitation to come walk in my love and enjoy me. So final practical suggestion here as we close. We want a reminder as we begin a new calendar year, nothing magical about starting a new year, but there's nothing wrong with taking the opportunity to say, hey, fresh start. How are we enjoying Jesus? How are we abiding in him? Is his word abiding in us? Let's make a plan. We chose this year not to select one specific read through the Bible plan to encourage us all to read together like we did this past year and have in other past years. Um, to encourage some, a little bit more breadth of ways that you might this year make a plan to have God's word abide in you in increasing measure. So here's how, the simple plan. Pick a person and make a plan. And I don't just mean necessarily a Bible reading plan. Let me give you a few ideas here. It could be picking a Bible reading plan, of which there are countless ones online. We'll share some on our Grace Facebook page this week, some links that you, you might go look at and, and, and consider. So maybe it's finding a person and saying, hey, would you, together with me, let's read through the Bible, read through the New Testament, or read through according to this plan. But what about this? Maybe it's asking someone, hey, for a, just a, a period of time, maybe eight eight times, Eight weeks we're going to get together. we pick a book and we're going to get together eight times and we're going to sit and we're going to read a part of that book out loud together and talk about it, pray about what we've just read, and then we'll see you next week. And when we get to the end of it, that's it. And maybe you decide, I'm going to go pick another person at Grace and ask, hey, would you like to do that? Maybe you pick Daniel because we're about to preach through Daniel. Or John 13 through 17, this upper room. Pick a person and just take a little bit of time. Here's another idea. Men, we're about to, in a couple of weeks, reboot the men's Bible study. Is it Thursday night? Wednesday nights. Wednesday nights. And it's teaching and training with tools for how to study the Bible on your own and feed yourself well from God's word. So men, maybe that's a way this year that you want to say, I'm going to make that a commitment in my schedule this spring uh, to be in that cl- come to that class Maybe it's scripture memory. Maybe that's something you've never done before or maybe you did when you were a kid, but it's been so long. And um, I was reminded again this week, I, I worked hard, to, I wanted to memorize this passage so that I could chew on it all week long as I was preparing. And every time I memorize scripture, I think, I'm such an idiot. Why do I not do this more often? Nothing helps me more than memorizing scripture to just see and, and, and draw the word. So maybe it's picking a person and saying, hey, let's memorize something. Maybe we'll start with John 15. Maybe it's Romans 8. Maybe it's something small like Psalm 1, you know, picks pick up, and, and maybe that's the plan. One last idea. Maybe it's finding a good book other than the Bible that helps explain parts of the Bible that you find difficult to understand, puzzling, maybe things about in, in the Bible that have actually caused you to struggle and doubt, and finding someone say, hey, would you read this book together with me, and let's talk about it. And, and, and it'll help undergird you receiving the word. So those are just ideas. You can, you can go from there. But I, I love encouraging you to do it with someone, pick a person, and make a plan. Let me pray. Lord, we, we ask that you would uh, give us a deep thirst and hunger to know more and more and more of the joy of Jesus in our own experience and that we take you at your word here and that we would actively abide in your love. I pray that by faith you would extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one that would wanna convince us otherwise and we would rest in your love and in doing so that we would bear much fruit and it would guide the way we pray and we would ask the sorts of things that bring you glory and us greatest joy and you'd be happy to answer, Lord. Help us be a people this year who are abiding in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.